Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, Faye. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Good. Um, you're, what, what do you do for a profession? Um, so I am a HIV and infectious diseases nurse. Okay. And so what typically might you be doing on a week before the coronavirus hit? So um, I have two jobs in two different hospitals. First half of the week, I used to see HIV patients maybe do a new diagnosis, um, maybe see someone who's been stable and on their medicines for years and they've had a blip and it's more of the like holistic supportive stuff. And then in my second job, um, I am a nurse educator for nurses that work in infectious and tropical diseases. So it might be walking a newly qualified nurse through how we work and getting them up to speed with their new speciality or just being there if someone goes oh I've never done this before can you help okay so the HIV stuff so that's um so you're working hands-on with people that have contracted the disease yep and uh part of your job might be to give the bad news yeah how's that um tough but once you I think what the first time you do it, you're scared of how they're going to react. Yeah. And once you've done it a couple of times, you realise that your job in that situation, someone's got to tell them. Um, and really what you need to do is reassure them. And they're not going to remember anything other than the bad news when you first tell them. Yeah. And it's about just making them feel like they they're okay and they can come back and then it's it's not just a one consultation a, a process like it's a few weeks where you're like getting them settled um and the first few times I did it I got loads of anxiety from it um but now it's a lot I'm not gonna say it, it's not easier it's I'm just I've just done it more often so I know what to expect what what can you remember the first time do you remember the patient? Yeah, he ran around the room. Did he? <laughs> yeah, and he just, he had an act. I was with a doctor um, and he just ran around the room and just couldn't process it. And the doctor left to go and do 
a few bits and pieces and when the doctor come back in he was sat there just chatting with me and I the doctor still goes I don't know what you did and to be honest I don't know either I think I just talked to him because mm. people just... sorry go on it's just lots of reassurance yeah because people do do um they do think that it's a life sentence still right but the reality yeah. is what so if you uh, take your medicines and take them how we tell you to, you will live a completely normal, be able to do whatever job you want. Um, you don't transmit to anybody else when you're on your medicines and what we call undetectable. Um, so if someone wanted to look it up, it's called U equals U. And essentially, if you're undetectable, you can't pass it on and you live into old age. Like we've got, patients in their 70s and their 80s and they've had HIV since maybe the 90s mm. and the medicine just keeps your immune system working and functioning like it does in everybody else. Uh, when you say undetectable does that mean you can have unprotected sex and not pass it on? Yeah. Wow. I know right? That's incredible. I mean it's a good thing because people don't have to be fearful about who they're having sex with or, or if they have a partner who's um, you know, who, who is HIV positive, but knows and, and there's a clear line of information that this this person is taking their meds correctly, that they can have they can have a complete relationship where they don't have to rely on 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 contraceptives. They can be as personal as they want to be, and no fear of the, the virus spreading. But sorry, the yeah. disease spreading. Is it a virus? It is. I'm getting so confused. It's a virus. Yeah. So 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 they can have that whole relationship. Uh, because of the developments in treating HIV, yeah, that's crazy, and um, and, and in a good way, and in, in um, so so is that once you're once you've had that conversation, is that is, is your first sort of line of reassurance saying, look, this is manageable, this is something yeah. that you don't have to be fearful of this. Is that how you go about it? What, what, what is yeah. your method? You you kind of say so. You tell them that. You tell them we're going to start your medicines as soon as possible. Um, there's lots of studies to say when we should and actually we just start them. And then it's reassurances. You are going to be okay. This is a long-term, like, manageable condition. And as long as you take your medicines, everything will be fine. Mm. And it's repeating that over and over again. Because people don't take the medicines? Um. Some people don't. London's quite good. Um, at, so there's uh, targets we're supposed to meet, and London does quite well. Um, but some people, and it's a lot of internal stigma, so it's lots of, I can't take this because I feel I'm dirty, and taking the tablet reminds me of it, and things like that. Wow. So it's, it, it's how they feel about themselves yeah. and how they relate to it that then the pills remind them why they're taking it. And that can be a problem. Um, this is it's so interesting. I, I, this, I wasn't anticipating the conversation go this way, but you know, it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, it's, it's, I, would, I would assume, and, and this is a kind of very pseudo explanation of what actually might be the facts, but because it's a sexually transmitted disease, that shame is infinitely more severe and impactful on that individual than it would be if they'd if they'd contracted uh a cold or or a 
or something that affected their immune system in the same way, not like a cold, but, you know, that they, they would have no issue in just medicating for that. But because it's a sexual act that happened and because of the, the stigma around that and because of how government um, attacked the, the, the AIDS virus back in the 80s with that campaign of, I don't know if you you ever remember you, you probably have definitely seen it in your in your work but as a kid who grew up in the 80s um, I remember vividly the, the adverts of this tombstone AIDS massive monolithic thing uh, and it basically said like, you're going to die if you get this so that, that kind of stigma is, is carried through to modern day but yeah I mean why don't what you think about that yeah it's uh, oh sorry it's alright then Sorry. Don't worry, don't worry. Um, so that that's probably the thing that people get, the, they can't get their head around. It's the, I I did something to catch this. Like I had, I had unprotected sex and people told you not to, so I did something. Mm. And you tell people, like millions of people do that every day. None of us would be here if people didn't do that. Yeah. So that's okay. And I've got patients who are like, I can't tell my family because then they'll think that I am promiscuous and things like that and that I I sleep around with lots of different people. And actually, it may not have been. It may have been they had one regular partner. That partner didn't know they had HIV and then they've passed it on unknowingly. Mm. And in that situation, you can't really blame anybody. Yeah, no. Um, some of my patients are perinatally acquired, so they've acquired their HIV from a parent through birth. Um, wow. They have quite a lot of... That's quite difficult because then you have to negotiate your first relationship with, yeah. I have HIV, and that's very difficult on them. Yeah, because uh, they didn't... They, they never went through the process. Like, if someone who, who's done it, Someone goes, if I go in to have, have unprotected sex and then I contract it, I can, even though it's shocking at the time and difficult to deal with, I, can, I, know the, I know the etymology of it. I know where it came from. I know what happened. But to be born with it, it's just you, right? It's just who you are. And that must be difficult. And then there's people who get them from blood transfusions and maybe poor medical hygiene i guess so it's so like reusing of needles so there's lots in um places that don't have needle exchanges their rate of hiv is a lot higher in their injecting drug users population mm. whereas in uh countries like the uk that have needle exchanges and have done since the 80s it's a lot lower um because we'll give clean kits to people um and it's 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 that stigma as well as like oh you must have you must have either had unprotected sex or you must be gay mm. and had unprotected sex or you must be a drug user i was going to ask that is there is the rate of infection still higher in gay men than uh straight relationships globally it's higher in straight relationships really yeah wow but in certain areas, then it's higher in like the population of men who have sex with men. So if you look at clinics in London, there's a clinic in Soho. They've got a very high population of patients who are men who have sex with other men. Mm. And if you then look in a clinic that's maybe in 
sort of the suburbs, then it might have a larger population of women. Okay. And is what, what, two things. Um, is it because the act of penetration means that you're you're more likely to conceive, i.e., if if you're being penetrated, uh, than the other way around? Yes. Okay, so that's that would explain why more women have it. Yeah. Right. Okay. And the other thing is, uh, when you said men sleeping with men as opposed to gay men, what what was the reason for that? Is that is that the the correct way to do it? The the, the ethical way to talk about it. So, so you by saying men who have sex with men, you're capturing people who identify as straight but have had sex with another man, or um, the population of bisexual men. So it's a catch-all, I guess, and it's it's our way of saying, oh, you're a, you might be someone who identifies as heterosexual, but you've experimented, and okay. therefore you're still at risk. Right, right. So it's not. It's, it's important not to. Ident- it's, it, the issue isn't whether someone identifies as gay or not. It's yeah. the fact that it, you are a man who's having sex, whether you identify as gay or not. Just to get it clear to people that this isn't a gay disease, and it never was. Exactly. Right. And it's not. It like we have just as I. I have lots of heterosexual men who have never had sex with another man, but they've contracted it through um, heterosexual sex or through um, having a blood transfusion in a resource-poor setting or something like that. Yeah. Um, and they're, it, it's just in certain popular... In certain areas, it's higher mm-hmm. in um, in certain populations, but that doesn't mean that it... It doesn't dis- it doesn't discriminate. It doesn't it's not gonna go, Oh, I'm not going to infect you because you're straight. Yeah, of course. It's gonna do it regardless. It's just your it's high risk behaviours that make you more likely. hmm Um so how many of like how do you know if someone is a straight man who has contracted it by having sex with another man who considers himself straight? Like why how do you know that as a thing? Well I'm sure they don't go around when you're talking to them, the, the, uh, why would you record the fact that they are heterosexual and they've had sex with men? Because um, we ask. I, uh, so I'd understand why you want to, because the data is important, but 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 it, surely it's much more common than, it's not once or twice that this is happening. So, it, yeah, I guess we ask because we need to know what risk they have in order to look for other sexually transmitted infections. Mm-hmm. So if I ask, a, if a straight man who has only ever had sex with women goes into a clinic, you're asking that, and they've got no symptoms, mm. then you're going to say, could you please pee in a pot and we'll test your urine? Yeah. Whereas if someone comes in and they identify as heterosexual and you say, but have you ever had X, Y, Z types of intercourse? Mm-hmm. And they say, yes then I'm going to do a more extensive panel of tests. And that might be that we do a rectal swab or we do a throat swab or something like that, Mm -hmm. because I don't want to miss the fact that they've got gonorrhea somewhere else. Yeah, understood. Um, So the HIV uh, sufferers or people that live with HIV, I'm not sure the correct way to term these things. Uh, People who live with HIV is right. Okay, correct. Uh, So people who live with HIV are... um, are they more susceptible to things like the coronavirus because their immune system? So, 
the there's not I guess there's because it's a new virus we're still trying to learn about it at the moment the British HIV Association is saying that if you're on your medicines and you've got a good CD4 count which is a particular type of um, immune cell um, that's affected by HIV then you're considered to be closely you're closer to being someone in the general population um, in regards to coronavirus mm. but there's not enough data so we just sometimes we just don't know the answer so we have to go on the data we have and and we we are always over cautious of course um but there's no there's nothing at the moment that's saying that they're in the same category as if they've got a good immune system as like the elderly population um but if someone's not on their medicine and they've got a low cd4 count then we're a lot more cautious about them mm, okay if just, just another quick question before we do go on to coronavirus what um if someone has a low count mm. cd4 count because they haven't been taking their medicine correctly can yeah. they rebuild it by just starting and, and taking the medicine properly again? Or do they permanently yeah. damage it? So some people will permanently have a sort of lower CD4 count, but everyone can make their CD4 count better by taking medicines. So I meet people whose CD4 count might be... So low, so low enough to consider dangerous is probably below 350. Low enough that we give you prophylactic antibiotics is below 200 i've met patients and they've had a cd4 count of 10 and then i've been able to get them into the 400s oh wow so it yeah you can repair it with medicines yeah yeah incredible fascinating um so how has your job changed um since the outbreak what what, what does your day revolve around now has it changed what 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 are you doing so my HIV job, I think I'm probably only going to do for another three days. And then I'm going to be a full-time COVID nurse educator, I guess. Although technically it's still infectious diseases nurse educator. Um, so my HIV job, we just, all of our clinics became telephone clinics. We stopped seeing patients face-to-face unless we absolutely had to. So new diagnosis changing their medicines that's about it otherwise we were just phoning them and then sending them medicine in the post or um getting them to pick them up from a pharmacy and then my educator job has been absolutely bonkers since january um all i have done since january to probably early march is teach people how to put on um personal protective equipment Okay. And how to take it off safely. And then when March hit, we started transforming our ward into a COVID ward. Um, we've now got three and a half COVID wards. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What's a COVID ward? So... All of the patients on that ward have COVID. So they are, um, every single patient, from the minute you walk into the door of the ward, you're in um, personal protective equipment. And it means that we, we do something called cohorting patients. So what you don't want to do in hospital is look after these patients, but transmit the virus from them to a patient that doesn't have it. So what we do is we group all of the patients that do have it together so they're not in individual rooms anymore they're just in a ward all together is there is um, there a risk that they they can contract a, uh, again or, or, or recontract or is there it can you do more home by, by being continually exposed um no otherwise so as far we as wouldn't know. yeah not as far as we know otherwise we wouldn't be putting them together. We do test them for other things. So if they've got uh, COVID and they've got another infection, then they go in their own room. Yeah. Um, we wouldn't put them with everybody else. And it's you're you're building up your immunity to it by fighting it off. Um. So as you fight it off, you're then getting antibodies, and your body's working a way out how to protect itself for it. Um, it's like when you get chicken pox as a kid mm. and then you don't get it again. Um, we don't know how long that immunity lasts at the minute, mm. but we know it's safe to say that when someone's resolving from the symptoms that they can still stay in that ward until they're discharged. So in a sense, it is like a, a small version of herd mentality, herd immunisation, sorry. Kind, kind of. Kind of. That's, I know that's quite a politically uh, hot, political hot potato that term, isn't it? But yeah, it's it's a misinterpretation of what um, of certain things that were said by the chief medical officer and the other people that are working on the process. Okay, so you're and are you on this ward, Faye? Are you near it? Yeah. Every yeah, day. So the, the first ward that turned into a COVID ward was my ward that I was based on. So we got our first query cases in January because we're the infectious diseases ward. So that's our bread and butter. If you um, if you talk to most nurses, they they don't necessarily know how to put on the correct PPE because that's not something that's required in their job. So I don't know how to give chemo because it's not part of my job but I do know how to wear PPE and what to wear it for because that is my job. Right, and um, what, what, are, what are people wearing when they're dealing with patients with COVID-19? So it depends. If they're 
um, if they're on a ward and the patients aren't having something we call an aerosolizing um, procedure, so an aerosol generating procedure, then they are in a apron, gloves, and a fluid repellent surgical mask because it's a droplet virus. So it um, it when someone coughs it. It drops to the floor quite quickly, um, but the main issue is that it will then be on surfaces, mm. and it can survive on surfaces for some time. So um, what you don't want to do is touch your face inadvertently while you've got gloves on. So that's why you've got a fluid repellent surgical mask on. And, and it, no, nothing can get through that mask? So uh, the virus can't... So you're not going to get droplets get through the mask because it's fluid repellent. So yeah, so the answer is no, it can't get through. But there are other viruses that, or other things that potentially could, and that's why you'd have to wear other equipment. Yeah, it... so I wouldn't wear that if I was looking after a patient with TB because that wouldn't be adequate. Mm. So it's just because I the, the COVID when it, it's not airborne, it's liquid. It, it carries in liquid. It, yeah, so the virus is um, transmitted through droplets, so that's how um, it works, whereas there are other things like that are transmitted aerosolized, so they it hangs in the air more, it doesn't drop. And you can inhale it? Yeah. Not so when we do... With COVID, it can do that, but only when we're doing something that aerosolizes it. So um, when someone's in intensive care on a ventilator their staff wear a lot more equipment and there are times where I have to wear more equipment depending on what I'm doing with a patient. Yeah. So um, I can do something called CPAP, which is um, a type of non-invasive ventilation. So um, it's, it's helping someone's lungs work without putting a tube in and that aerosolizes. So when I do that, I wear a much higher filtration mask that works a lot better mm -hmm. um, and it stops the aerosolized particles coming in. I wear eye protection and then I wear a full body gown that covers my arms as well as covering my, like my scrubs and stuff. It comes down to about my mid calf um, and it depends on what you're doing you'll maybe or maybe not wear an apron on top of that but our gowns have got a fluid repellent um, panel in the front and on the arms um, to protect us from it okay uh, so you've seen someone or many people that have come into the hospital and uh, recovered yeah. or not you so you've seen that process yeah uh, how uh, how varied are the symptoms in the people? If they're hospitalised, do they all express the same level of discomfort or does it vary? It, it does vary. The, the main thing is that they need oxygen. So they'll be what we call hypoxic and it means their oxygen levels are just very low and the severity varies from me needing to give a couple of litres of oxygen via a normal... Um, uh, so we call them nasal cannula. Yeah. Um, so it's the traditional thing you see tubes going up someone's nose, yeah. around their ears and back down. And they could need a couple of litres on that, which... So oxygen in the air you breathe is about 21%. If I put someone on two litres, they're between 24 and 28% they're getting. Um, 
from there to being ventilated, there's lots of different levels in between. Um, being ventilated, you've got something not only delivering the oxygen, but also doing the movement um, of air exchange for your lungs so that your lungs don't need to um, because the lungs just aren't able to keep up with it. And they're probably getting 100% oxygen or as close to as we can do. And this is uh, a machine where you see, I don't know if they still look like this, but in my head when I've seen them in films and stuff, there has like a pump that goes up and down and you can see that yeah. and, can, and it sounds like it's it's breathing. It, or, do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. Is that, is that a weird thing to say? It, it just it, No, no, no. It's, it, it's the pump is causing the change in pressure that normally your lungs do. So that's what it's doing. Um, and if someone is on that ventilator, what's the process once they're considered well enough of getting them off? Or are you only well enough once, you know, for some people so, it, it, it'll be difficult to get off at all? So the amount of pressure you're using to help you change. So um, the less pressure you're needing to help them, they call it PEEP. And ventilators are not my speciality. I don't, I've not worked in itu yeah um, they can then convert them to what i can do which is cpap and when they're stable on cpap they come to one of the wards that i'm working on out of the several in the building what's cpap uh, sorry so it's continuous positive airway pressure right. so if you the way to explain it is that it's like sticking your head out of a car while it's moving at 70 miles an hour that's what it feels like mm-hmm um, and it's a mask strapped to your face and it can deliver uh, anything from 21% oxygen like Rimer up to 100 and it causes it by blowing the pressure into your lungs it causes your lungs to stay a little bit more open than they would normally and that allows for better gas exchanges um, so you're not getting you're getting all of your alveoli in your lungs getting exchange happening in them and we wean that process so you start with a higher pressure and lots of oxygen and then you wean that off and get less and less and you can take breaks so I take it off to allow someone to eat and if actually they're doing not too bad on it then I can reduce the amount of time they're on the mask and eventually they get off that onto normal oxygen and then we wean that down to the point where they're just breathing normal room air like everyone else and that's when they go home and that's things like um this is the recovery is happening it's finally easier because things like antibiotics are working and things like that and a, a vaccine or whatever it is are working so, and, and, and the, the lungs are slowly repairing or the virus is being killed so it's not it's not antibiotics because it's a so antibiotics work on a bacteria and this is a virus right um what we're doing is supportive care so we're allowing we're supporting their lungs to function while their body fights the virus off itself right but then we'll also do things like if they're dehydrated we'll cover them with fluids um we might put a feeding tube in because this is affecting uh elderly patients and elderly patients tend to get a delirium when they're sick and they stop eating mm. they stop drinking they um, become bed bound when they wasn't normally so it might be an elderly person who normally gets up, goes to the shop, gets their newspaper, buys their pint of milk, goes home, goes to clubs, still goes down the pub, all that sort of stuff, to being bed bound because they're sick. Mm. Um, it's that sort of supportive care that we're delivering. 
rather than actively treating um, with me- with a particular medicine. There are trials going on, but there's not uh, there's not like a this works at the minute. No, fair enough. Um, I know that with my nan. I watched my nan actually. She had an, a bladder infection, and when she was in the hospital, the delirium, and, and actually she had it at home first, which made us worry and call a doctor. But they'd, like active hallucinations would actually talk, be talking to someone who isn't there, or re- referring to something that's not happening. And um, and she was. I remember once that she was talking about there being hay and animals all over the front room, and obviously I came to realize or came to learn actually that that that. that this is a symptom sometimes of an infection, but um, what? So can I? I'm going to ask quite a morbid qu- question now. Okay. Uh, and I'm, tr- I'm trying my hardest not to be insensitive about it. But have you seen? Uh, uh, what's the recovery rate of the wards that you've been working on? How how many people are, are making it through? So you've got to imagine out of all the patients who get coronavirus or COVID. I see the worst of the worst. I don't see the ones who aren't sick enough to go to hospital. So at the beginning, we had quite a lot of deaths, more than we had recovery, but that's because the recovery takes a little while longer. Um, We, on a ward of 22, we had three deaths in one day in a 12 hour period. And for infectious diseases nurses, that's really high. We we would consider it a bad week if we had three deaths. Um, we'd consider it a bad month if we had that many on the wards. Um, so for us, it's something that we're we're finding a change and we're finding it a bit difficult. Um, I'm really lucky in that my hospital's got a very good palliative care team that are very supportive, not only of uh, our patients, but also of our staff. Um, But it's, it's something, it's more than we're used to. Uh, How are you though? Um, I, today I'm okay. It fluctuates, if I'm honest. Um, Part of my job as the educator is to do a lot of pastoral care, so it's to do a lot of care of staff rather than active care of patients. Mm. I still do that, but normally to assist somebody. Um, And it it gets me down when my staff get down. Yeah. Um, And it's a lot of it's because they can't switch off. So they go home, they turn on the telly, everything's about this. And they ring a family member and it's about this. They talk to a friend, it's about it. So, And they can't do some of the activities they would normally do. So they're getting quite weighed down. Mm. If, you're, if you're a nurse, you might, you might go home, but you're not going to watch Holby City on repeat, if that makes sense. Yeah, Mainly because Holby City is awful. But, yeah, um, but I understand you escape from your, the, the yeah. reality of your job. Yeah, so you don't, you're not going to turn on the news and see your particular job mentioned in every news story, and it's not going to affect your uh, favourite pastimes and things like that. Um, 
I've always found going to football really helped me and I can't do that anymore. Um, so some people find going to the gym really helps and they can't do that because they've all sharp. Um, some people like seeing their family, but they're scared to be around their family because not necessarily because we're working with COVID because I don't think that's going to put my staff at a, a significantly higher risk, but because they're traveling to and from work that's putting them at risk. Mm. Um, and if they've got family members who are in that high risk category, they won't go to see them. Mm. Um, so that, I think that's challenging. Has there been any members of your team or anyone in the hospital has contracted it? Um, so I had a couple of doctors that went on holiday to Northern Italy that came back with it. Wow. Um, so we've got, and we've got staff that have been off sick. And at the moment, there's a big thing about the NHS workers not not having tests at the moment, which are allegedly coming in the next week or two. Mm. Um, and it's, but we're just at the same risk as the rest of the population are when we go out and about, when we've been on public transport, when we've been at a friend's house or whatever it is. If you know someone if someone knows someone at their workplace that got it, I know someone at my workplace that has got it. Yeah, I understand. So it's not it's not like an exponential problem in in hospitals where doctors and nurses are falling like flies. It's it's um, it's an issue societally. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think that's everything, Faye. Uh, I, it's been really, really interesting. Um, I've gone through so much more. I've got through so much more than I had written down. Uh, and um you know i don't want to make this awkward but you know thank you for everything you're doing uh and all your colleagues are doing i think for you know given the fact that the country's been so divided politically for such a long time that it's a shame that it's taken something so disastrous and scary to to bring people together but um you know everyone's really grateful for the work you guys are doing and you know as long as there are people like you and and your colleagues you know, helping fight this, then we're always going to be in a good position. So, all right, thank you for for your time, Faye. And uh, the next time we speak, it will be about Tottenham and not this. Good. All right, bye. No, oh, bye. <laughs>